Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Pray with me, please. Holy Father, as we look to your word now, we ask that you would grant us to see Christ. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit to apply the truth of your word. We ask that you would help us to lay aside distractions, responsibilities, situations on our minds and on our hearts, that we might fully focus on what you have to say to us today. That those are words that may not explicitly and clearly come out of my mouth, Lord, but they are the words of your spirit writing through the Apostle Paul and reaching to our hearts to show us the surpassing value of Christ, to create a never-ending fountain of joy in him, to help us lay aside anything that would stop us or slow us down from knowing you making much of you. Thank you for your promise of your help in these times. Thank you that you've granted your spirit. Thank you that you've given your son. And I pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to look at this passage of 11 verses in four sections today. You'll see that in your bulletin. The first being just verse 1 as a command to rejoice in the Lord. The second section being verses 2 through 3, a warning against false teaching. Third being verses four through seven, a call to leave behind anything in the way of knowing Christ. And lastly, verses eight through 11, to whatever may come, commit to know Christ better. So we start, obviously, with verse one, this call to rejoice. The Christian journey is meant to be one of satisfaction in Christ, all he is and all he's done on our behalf. What Paul says when he tells us to rejoice in the Lord is not limited to a response to what he's just finished saying, but it's actually a command to be rejoicing in the Lord. 
Already with one word, the perspective of some who imagine that Christianity's main tenet is to be a killjoy, leaving believers as cold, joyless, lifeless adherence to a system is completely done away with. How serious is the Lord about joy? We not only have joy available to us in unending measure in Christ, but we're commanded to rejoice. This isn't a unique instance in this verse alone. We'll see it later come up in chapter 4 of Philippians. You see it multiple times in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, as well as Psalm 32, 11, Psalm 105, verse 3, both calling people, God's people to rejoice in him. This exhortation deals with the hearts of God's people by aligning them with God's heart. This is an important thing to consider. I think a lot of times our perspective of God is shaped by things other than Scripture. And one of the things that we'll find here is that the God that we worship is a God of joy and satisfaction. God is not lacking in that in any way. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 16 and verse 11 the psalmist says that in the presence of God is the fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's no end to the joy that God has. You know, the Bible does tell us that by our sin we can grieve, we believers can grieve the Holy Spirit living inside of us through committing um, sinful acts and having sinful motives and all those kind of things. But that grieving that the Holy Spirit does over our sin is not one that takes away something from the quality and from the the joy that is in the presence of God. It is one that expresses to us God's disappointment and his sorrow, but it doesn't remove joy from the one who has an endless source of joy in and of himself. Joy is obviously pretty important. We kind of use it as the word that we're looking at in Philippians. It shows up many, many times as we've talked about so far. But one thing came, came across um, the internet yesterday for me. It was a quote by Charles Spurgeon, who's one of my many heroes in uh, preaching. And he makes an important observation regarding joy in the Christian's life. There's, he says this, There's not a Christian who has enjoyed perpetual happiness. There's no believer who can always sing a song of joy. It is not every lark that can always carol. It is not every star that can always be seen, and not every Christian is always happy. Do you agree with this? Certainly. (laughs) Some very, very much agree with that. Yes, it's good. It's a good point. And and it was good for me in in working through this passage and thinking, yes, I'm just going to tell everybody to rejoice. Look, it's commanded. We're called to it. We have to rejoice. It's not always the case that we, we access that joy, and it's not always the case that, that the world that we live in facilitates our ability to rejoice in the Lord very well. In fact, it doesn't take long to look at the world that we live in and realize that there's not much joy in it whatsoever. So Spurgeon is true. We cannot claim perfection in following any tenet of the Christian life, um, even that regarding joy. We must live a life marked by a pattern of returning to the joy giver. In John 16, 22, Jesus instructs his disciples that when he rises from the dead, they will have joy and no one will take that joy from them. In the event that we lay down our joy in Christ or are overcome by the worries and challenges of this life that are legitimate, we need only sit at his feet 
and ask that he would restore the joy of salvation as David prayed in Psalm 51:12, and trust him in his time to do so. So what I don't mean is that if you're lacking joy today, all you need to do is ask God and he's going to fill you right up. There are times, as the, the writer in Ecclesiastes would say, there's a time to weep, there's a time to be sorrowful, and there's also a time to rejoice. But what we ought to realize, I think, is that there's, there's never a time that joy is not available to us in Christ. I hope that makes sense. I hope that what you don't hear today is this idea that, that God wants us to rejoice and when we're not rejoicing, we're in sin. That's not what I'm trying to get at at all. But I can say from my own life and from many Christians that I know, one of the reasons that we don't walk in joy is because we don't walk with Christ. And that's what it comes down to. Much of the time that we spend joyless, we are spending Christless. And so if you find yourself in that situation today or any other time, I hope that what you hear today will be helpful in that regard. If you're in a time of sorrow right now where, where joy is elusive and the idea of, 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 of hearing this passage say, rejoice in the Lord as an imperative direction for Christians, and you say, I just can't do that right now, understand the Lord is compassionate to you. This is not a typical kind of command where you are righteous for doing it and you're sinful for not doing it, Okay? It's a matter of saying this, rejoice in the Lord, receive what God has for you today. And my hope is that we progressively will face the trials of this life clinging more to Christ than we have previously and accessing that joy in some measure day by day as we talk about the progress of what God is doing uh, all the way back to chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 that we ought to work out our salvation in fear and trembling because God is at work in us well I believe that that joy is something that God is working in us that rejoicing in Christ is definitely something God wants to work in our hearts and so we ought to exercise that and, and put effort and discipline ourselves to access that joy as often as we can. The idea of joy in the life of a believer is a supernatural condition created by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It is in fact listed in the fruit of the Spirit, the description of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. And I feel often compelled to note that that fruit of the Spirit is not a list of different fruits, but it is one fruit that consists of all those things that we know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, and whatever the one is that I always forget that obviously I need to work on. The answer to growing in joy or restoring it then is not a matter of fixing circumstances, or um, shutting, shutting our eyes and ears off to the things that are going on in life, but rather, it's a, it's a matter of seeing the Holy Spirit's work in his people and through his people. So we can spend time in the Word, we can spend time in prayer, but we need to add to that concept being among God's people if we'd like to see the Lord create more joy in our lives. This first word in chapter 3, verse 1, finally, um, is translated here from a Greek word that is probably better translated as so then. In light of all Paul has said thus far, what should we do? Rejoice. Joy needs to be the lens through which we read all of the following passage, and in, a, in part, all of the rest of the book of Philippians. 
Rejoice and rejoice in the Lord. He has made himself known to us. Paul is going to reiterate some things he had previously said to the Philippians in person, most likely, but continue to be pertinent to the life of the church, even to this very Sunday. As he says in the second part of verse one, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So this matter of joy immediately is followed by this concept of safety and of of security in the Lord as we are his people. It's a matter of rejoicing in the truth of knowing Christ as our means of righteousness and thus keeping ourselves and each other safe from false teaching. So here's the warning against false teaching, verses two through three. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The warning Paul gives is a matter of safety, as I've said. Securing our joy in the Lord alone and guarding against false teaching contrary to the gospel. A.W. Tozer, a pastor um, from the early 1900s to the 1960s, um, wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what we believe matters. The dogs, this term that Paul uses here, was a term used for Gentiles by Jewish people under the, New, the, under the Old Testament, sorry, and Paul is taking that term Gentile dog and turning it around and almost calling those, these Jews now dogs. He, he is calling them that. It's describing those who would say that one must earn their righteousness with God by works of the law, especially seen in circumcision. And so when Paul says, beware of those who mutilate the flesh, he's talking about those people who say, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And the reason that he he sees this as evil is because it's taking something away from the glory of Christ as all of our salvation depends on him. They do not seek to know Christ alone, but rather their teaching is to say, keep all the traditions of the Jewish people and add to it knowing Christ. Or even the opposite would be true. Knowing Christ, add to it all of the law and make sure you keep up with all of it and all of our practices. In doing this, these Judaizers, as they were called, showed they did not know Christ at all. If they truly knew him, there would be no compulsion to add anything to the work of Christ to make us righteous before God. To the false teachers, circumcision was essential to salvation. So remember in Acts chapter 15, these two verses, chapter 15 verses 1 and 5, um, this chapter Uh, describes the convening of what we call the Jerusalem Council, a council that was made up of apostles and other early church leaders who met to discuss the issue of Gentile conversion, that there were many people who were not practicing Old Testament believers, but now they were coming into the church through believing in Christ as anyone else does. And they were asked this question, what do we ask of them? What kind of requirements should we put on them? So here were the two that the Judaizers were trying to promote amongst the Gentile believers. The two requirements being, one, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, already when we look at that, we should see a huge problem with, our, with that coming against our theology of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. To say that, that unless something happens, you cannot be saved Unless we're talking about faith in Christ, unless we're talking about the work of Christ at the cross, no sentence can ever be true with those words. Secondly, in verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. 
The sad thing was that the Old Testament had already made the matter of circumcision very clear multiple times. For example, in Jeremiah verse 4 of chapter 4, he writes, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And I thought this was, a, this was a great passage for us to look at in light of what Paul's writing here, talking about the evildoers. And because what, what God is speaking through Jeremiah to his people are, you can't look at circumcision and say, I'm right with God because of this physical act. You need to circumcise your hearts. You need to be made new. You need a spiritual renewal inside of you in order to be right with me that only I can do. So it was never a matter of a physical act, but of spiritual renewal. And that was all the Gentiles were going to be asked, I'm sorry, were going to be called to, as decided in Acts 15 by the Jerusalem Council. Indeed, if we return all the way back to Abraham to see that circumcision is a sign of the covenant, Genesis 15, 6 reminds us that Abraham believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. So there's never been a time in redemptive history when salvation was about our works. In fact, it was about works, just not ours. It's about the work of Christ, about what Christ would come to do, even in the Old Testament. The reason Abraham is with God right now is not because of this verse alone, but because of what this verse alludes to. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Why did he receive righteousness? Because he believed the Lord. This is exactly what we're doing today, friends. If we're in Christ, we believe the Lord and he counts it to us as righteousness. We just have more of the story. But Abraham, upon entering heaven, would have found out, I presume, or maybe he, he did after the work of Christ. I shouldn't speak to that matter. But Abraham knows now that the reason that he is with God is because of Christ. It must have been an amazing thing to consider. We will enter into eternity if we're in Christ and if we are with him, we will enter into eternity knowing why we're there. Can you imagine coming in and saying, well, I believed God. I don't know how he could make my sins right, but he did through Christ and he would have found out in eternity. That's pretty cool. That just came to my mind. That was for free, sorry. So as I said, there's never been a time where salvation has been about our works. Rather, right standing with God has always depended on responding to God in utter trust that he will make us right with him, that he is faithful, compassionate, and sacrificially loving. So Paul then says in verse 3 that we are the circumcision, worshiping by the Spirit, glorying in Christ, putting no confidence in the flesh. To place a physical requirement for salvation was to show that the spiritual renewal had never really happened. Outward signs of righteousness mean nothing if there's no inward renewal. So consider today, going to church, teaching a class, preaching a sermon, doing outreach ministry, and other religious activities are very important. But our theology matters as well. Are, are these things our working out our salvation that God is working in us? Or are they themselves what we trust for righteousness? So to go back to the illustration of circumcision, not that I want to keep talking about circumcision because it's weird, but that act when God called Abraham to to practice circumcision, he didn't do it saying, and once you do that, things will be right. Abraham brought that, that practice into, into, into practice <laughs> because he believed God. The foundation of faith already existed. And so the things that were done 
afterwards, those, those outward physical acts are done on a foundation of faith already. So if you're here today, my hope is that you came because of your faith in Christ, because of what he's doing in you, and you're working that out, rather than saying, I'm going to go to church, and I really hope that makes me okay with God. I hope he gives me a really great week after I have attended something. So Paul says, we worship by the Spirit. We glory in Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. So remember Paul's opening exhortation to this passage, rejoice in the Lord. So my question to you is, do your outward signs of deeds stem from rejoicing in what the Lord is doing in you? Or is it just some sense of cold duty and responsibility? So Paul calls these, these false teachers dogs and evildoers. And um, D.A. Carson actually said, you know, regarding this, because I wonder why is it that Paul uses this idea of evil? Of course it's evil, but why does he point it out? So D.A. Carson writes in regard to this passage, if circumcision relativizes Christ, that is to say that circumcision and Christ kind of stand on the same platform together, and fails to acknowledge that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament types and models. That is that everything in the Old Testament points to Christ and everything in the New Testament shows that he has fulfilled and made perfect those commands. If these things happen, it is positively evil. The evil is to be found in the taking away of something of Christ's rightful glory and salvation and degrading salvation to an act of mere men saying that Christ, what Christ has done is not enough, and that is evil. Because what is it that Christ did to earn our salvation for us? Actual question. What did he do? He died on the cross, right? If your child had to die for another person, and that person for whom they died said, that was really nice, but I would like a little bit more, how furious would you be? How, how offensive and disgusting would it be for us to look at what Christ has done and say, I see that that's a really great starting point, but I'm going to make sure that I add something to that because I just don't know if it's enough. That's odious, isn't it? Oh, and so when we see Paul talk about these evildoers, we need to realize why he thinks such great evil is being done by this false teaching. Next, verses four through seven. Leave behind anything in the way of knowing Christ. So here comes Paul's resume. He wants to show the supremacy of knowing Christ above any other attempts at righteousness so that there may be no doubt of the wrong being said by the dogs and the evildoers. So if anyone had reason to think boasting in the flesh was a good idea, it was Paul. He chose to ignore and cast aside anything that would be confused for righteousness apart from Christ. He says that he would be hard, they would be hard-pressed to find a more doggish worshiper of God than he was. Paul was circumcised lawfully on the eighth day of his life. You'll see the resume start here. I'm just going to kind of walk through, um, starting here in verse 5. So he was circumcised on the eighth day, which was the lawful way to go about it. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was a tribe with a good history. It was the only one to faithfully affirm the Davidic dynasty through the tribe of Judah, when all the other tribes... Uh, decided to reject and defect from that. 
Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and this kind of language you know, might remind you of the idea of Jesus being Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that you know, Jesus is the kingliest of kings. Paul saw himself as the, the Hebrewist of Hebrews. He was a thoroughbred, trained and raised up to be a poster child for all others who would hope to remain Jewish in a contrary world. He was a Pharisee, the strictest of adherents to the law. Those who boasted of knowing God's law better than any other tradition, and yet they tragically showed us in the Gospels, they did not know God. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was zealous to make them pay for the great blasphemy they committed by calling Jesus the Christ. If there was righteousness to be found by following the law, he would have had it. Instead, he gladly leaves all of those things behind in order to know Christ. It's not a matter of saying, I'm going to withhold, I'm going to keep these things on my resume, I'm going to make sure that people still know all these great things about me. He says, the problem is, if these things are what I'm about, that takes something away from Christ. So what we like to tell, and just keep the, keep the idea of resume in mind, which I, in, in a recent season, was passing along quite a bit. You write a resume, and you have to do it selfishly. You have to. There's just no other way around it. You, know, you don't write a resume and say, I'm really bad at scheduling out my time. I don't get enough sleep. Um, you, know, you, don't, you don't go through all those things and say, like, well, I'm a good humble Christian. Maybe they'll hire me. Well, no, nobody's going to hire you for finding your faults, right? Um, they'll find them later on, of course. But what you want to do is, as a Christian at least, you want to present what God has done through you, right? And what Paul is saying is that all these things that I've listed, God was far from all of them even though they all sound very good and very religious, they had nothing to do with him. So when Paul says at the end of this in verse seven, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The word gain is plural in the Greek. And so he took all that he was and all that he had done and it added up to zero. Now it's good for us to know that Paul does not dismiss the law entirely. He says elsewhere that the law is a teacher to lead us to Christ. Old Testament believers could be made right by faith in God, shown by obedience to the law. Their obedience did not merit their salvation, but those who truly trusted God, as Abraham did, showed that, showed that trust by obedience to the covenant. When Christ came, he came, as he said, to bring a sword, to bring division. And so what happened in the Jewish commu community was those who were truly waiting the Messiah and would accept Christ, rightfully so, would move on from Jewish tradition and put their faith entirely in Christ as, as they already had by believing God and it was counted to them as righteousness. And then those who showed that their, those who did not believe in Christ showed that their hope was not in God, but rather in themselves and in what they had done. And so this is Paul at the, at the crossroads of this. He's decided to leave everything behind to better know Christ. The point is, just be aware of temptation to justify yourself. And none of us are truly immune. The humblest of us can still find in our humility a great reason to hope that we can actually make ourselves pretty good. You know? There's a great line, and I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible Christian because I haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, but um, I've seen the movies, so yay. Um, but there's a great line in the end of the second one, Prince Caspian, and there's a, a rat. I wish I would have remembered the name, the name of the rat. Somebody? 
Thank you. Reepicheep has this great line in the movie, at least, where he's lost his tail in this great battle. And Aslan restores his tail to him. And he holds the tail up. And, and in all sincerity, um, it, it just in a genuine moment, he says, this will ever be a sign to me of my huge humility. You know, It's a great, great little line. And it's a great uh, example for us that even if we work out all sorts of things and put things far beyond us, in our humility, we may still be tempted to find justification in and of ourselves. So Alec Montier says this regarding this passage and the, regarding the flesh, the works of the flesh. He said, the flesh is not only man at his worst, but man at his best, who is, if, who is flesh, and therefore not yet acceptable to God. It suits those, that is the flesh, the flesh suits those who have sunk lowest in sin and those who have risen, risen highest in moral, religious, and spiritual rank. If we are in Christ, there's no room to point to justification anywhere else nor to add anything of our doing or being to what Christ has done. What other things might we boast in? Wealth, status, education, emotional stability, church attendance, suffering injustice. If any of those sound like they're ringing a bell in your head, like some of them do for me, give yourself a break today. Lay all those things down and trust Christ afresh again. Like the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Rejoice in the Lord for salvation, not in your own works. This last section, whatever may come, commit to know Christ better. Now that he has left all things behind, Paul's convinced that he can never return to them. So we see in verse 7 that he said, I counted all as loss. And now in verse 8, he repeats it again, but he puts it in the present tense. He says, now he counts all as loss. So again, verse 7 Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing else that Paul might attain has anywhere near the value of Christ in his mind. And he's right. The same should be true of us. Pursuing Christ alone satisfies the deepest needs of our hearts. In Christ, a Christian finds a surpassing worth, something that is not altogether like and a good substitute for other things the world might give us by, for the purpose of joy, but rather it is something that is found nowhere else. It is what Jesus calls the, the kingdom of God being like a pearl of great price to which a man found in a field and it was buried there and so he buried it again and then he went home and he sold everything that he had and he bought the field so that he could have that one thing. Paul says he counts all his former attempts at righteousness as rubbish. I don't know if you know what that word means in the Greek. We are, we are very prim and proper to translate it as rubbish. But he, had, he considers all of those things as rubbish, such that looking back at it would be like to look back at something that belongs in a sewer. That which was in his mind his righteousness has become detestable and nauseating. Wanting to return to status, achievement, or importance as our identity would be like calling the garbage service and saying, please return all that I sat out last Friday. I've realized how much it really meant to me. This is what Paul's getting at. So, as an alternative, verse 9, says, in order that I may gain Christ at the end of verse 8, verse 9, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here he's using that same phrase, found in him, that we see in chapter 2, verse 8, describing Christ being found in human nature. If you remember, that phrase informed us of Christ's humanity and that anyone who saw him walking around would have recognized he was human by his obvious nature. So Paul is saying that his goal is to be found in Christ in the same way, that it would be obvious by his nature that he knows Christ. The hope then for every Christian is that Christ has received such prominence in their life that it shouldn't take someone long to realize the difference he has made in our lives. Something that rolls around in my, my head often as I think about my witness is that I would be terrified if somebody knew me for any length of time and then found out I was a Christian and was surprised by it. You know what I mean? That concept of, wow, you're a Christian? should really inform us about how our witness is going, right? Or maybe even deeper, it should, ask us, should, should cause us to ask whether we truly are or not. Is there, is there no fruit? Is that what's really going on here? And I'm not, just, not trying to say that, you know, as we meet people, we should say, hi, I'm a Christian and my name is Nick. You know, that's going to get kind of awkward. And I don't think that Christ wants us to be um, unnecessarily awkward or obnoxious or annoying with people. But as we meet new people, our goal should be not to show outward signs of, of like, like the Judaizers were, were with circumcision to say, oh, well, yes, we've, we've all been circumcised or we all attend the um, synagogue on Saturdays or we all do those things, but rather that what God is working in us, we would be working out so that it would be obvious. You know, the alternative, the opposite of what we would look for then, rather than hearing people say, oh, you're a Christian, I had no idea, would be that before we even have an opportunity to speak to them about our faith, that they would say, you sound like, you look like, the things you do, whatever it is that I'm seeing, it's different, it's weird. Are you, are you part of something? Is there something different about you? I wouldn't say that people would automatically say, oh, you must be a real Christian. Because the culture that we live in, in thinking about real Christianity, what, what they define as real Christianity, may not necessarily line up with what Scripture says. So perhaps the first thing that we hope people see in us is just a difference. So Paul is saying that this is his goal, to be found in him. He's in fact, Christ is in fact our righteousness, our right standing with God. The reason he has accepted us and made us new. The reason we no longer fear anything, even death. Our righteousness is not so insecure as to have been, has to have been accomplished by our own efforts, frail and wavering as they often are but in Christ and in him alone. It's a great cause for joy today. If nothing else in life right now can point to joy in Christ for you, remember what he's done and what he's brought you to. What the cross accomplished was not just a nice notion, a nice, a nice thing for us to hear about on Sunday mornings. He's brought you into right standing with God. You who were once afar off enemies of God are now beloved you're no longer, it's not a matter of just saying God's, God's like, okay, we're cool, but, you know, I'm never going to forget what you did. Rather, God welcomes us in the same way he welcomes Christ. That's incredible. I hope it fills your heart with joy today. Because it is our great reason to rejoice. I wouldn't trample over trials that you're facing today, fellow believer. 
But I must tell you, if you'll have it, there is joy in knowing Christ has won you away from sin and death. So to quote another hymn, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Being a non-musical person, I wasn't one to do much singing outside of the shower or my car. But when I became a believer in Christ, I found that this, there was this new desire welling up in me on Sunday mornings to just sing at the top of my lungs as, as ugly and weird as it might have sounded. I couldn't help it. It's not to say that singing is what it's all about, but that there's, there's an outward expression that, that stems from the truth of what God has done in us. And for me, singing is one of those things. I mean, boy, there, there are times that I just want to get up and just start leading worship, and I'll never do that. Don't worry. But um, I just, I get, I, I, it's these words like this, you know, my song will ever be how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Um, as, as I've walked with him, as I've got to know him more, I want to find more ways to rejoice in him. So verse 10 holds Paul's goal. Ultimately, the goal of all of this is to know him. And it's fascinating, my friends. Paul writes this after nearly 30 years of being an apostle of Jesus Christ. And what is his goal? To know him. Well, Paul, come on, who knows Jesus better than you? It's not a matter of who knows Jesus better for Paul. It's a matter of I want to know him more. Paul has suffered for Christ. And as he learned on the Damascus road, to suffer for Christ is to suffer with Christ. When he was on his way to go further persecute Christians, Jesus appeared to him, knocked him off of his horse, blinded him, and then says this, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's response after that is, who are you, Lord? I'm not persecuting somebody like you. But Christ identifies with the suffering of his people. Why does Paul want to pursue suffering to such an extent? In verse 10 here, he says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Why does he want that? Remember, he doesn't pursue it alone, but he calls us to it as well in chapter 1, verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. To share in the suffering of Jesus is truly what Christ meant when he said, if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross, Mark 8, 34. It doesn't say some who follow me. If anyone will follow me, Take up your cross. Maybe if we feel our relationship with Christ is lacking, if we feel we aren't as close to him as we think we ought to be or would like to be, it might have something to do with suffering. Not about how often we suffer for Christ or the lengths we go to to suffer for Christ, but perhaps more about our willingness to say, Jesus, if it means I may be closer to you, 
may understand you better, may walk more faithfully with you, may grumble and complain less, may love my brothers and sisters better, may be a more effective witness to the world around me, or even enough just to please you, I will embrace any suffering just to know you more. Coming to verse 11, what is the end of knowing Christ? Knowing him, the power of his resurrection, sharing in sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 11, that by any means possible, can any means possible, he's left so much behind. He's left all of his resume behind, all of his pedigree, everything that made Paul so special in the Jewish community. He's left all of that behind. And now he says, whatever I need to do by any means possible, I want to attain the resurrection from the dead. How long has Paul been a Christian? Do you remember? Nearly 30 years at this point. What is he talking about attaining the resurrection of the dead? Isn't that salvation? And isn't that something that once somebody believes in Christ, they, they will look forward to the resurrection of the dead, right? We, we won't stay dead when we die here physically. We will live spiritually forever with Christ. First of all, John 6, 68. It's a long chapter. Two things I want to get at from verse 11 have to do with these two passages in John. So Simon Peter answered Jesus and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The only way to receive the resurrection from the dead is to know Christ and to stay with him. To whom shall we go? It's not a matter of saying, I heard that sermon by Jesus and then I just went back to my normal life. I believe it. I, I, I mentally consent to it, but rather, to whom shall we go? The question that Jesus asks him in verse 67 is, will you go away as well? Peter says, we can't go anywhere else. You have the words of eternal life. It's not enough for us to just hear them and then go about our married way, but you have so radically impacted and changed our lives that we cannot leave you. You have eternal life. So when Paul says, I want to attain the resurrection from the dead, he's talking about continuing on with Christ to prove that the faith that he initially proclaimed in Christ is legitimate by faithfully walking with him. Secondly, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is Jesus doing when he says this in John 17? Does anybody know? He's praying, right? He's talking to his father and he defines eternal life for us so clearly. And eternal life not being once you physically die, you can get to continue to live in heaven. He says this, eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. If you know him, you have eternal life because that's what it is. It's all wrapped up in knowing Christ. So Paul commits that this is his one hope. But what about us? We must never let complacency rule our hearts in this matter. I wonder what we may be holding on to that's keeping us from knowing Christ better today. It could be this issue of suffering. For me, that's a hard one. It's not an easy issue, and I don't stand here to tell you that I have the, fig the secret figured out and applied. But what, what, I, what I have come to, what, what has brought my, my soul some rest in this concept is this. If suffering is a means for me to know Christ better, 
and there is nothing better than knowing Christ, which Paul's made very clear, then I can trust the Lord to lead me to suffering graciously and to bring me through it in his power. Regarding suffering, consider this. Christ's suffering at the cross was the only moment in all of eternity that God the Father turned his back on his son. He suffered alone. You will never be asked to do that. You who are in Christ, if suffering is in your future because of your call to follow him, take up your cross knowing the Holy Spirit of God is with you to empower you to face it faithfully for his sake. This, another side point here, I've often wondered if my life suddenly took this dramatic change to where I would now need to physically suffer for my proclamation of faith in Christ, what do I have to stand on? You know, I can say, well, I trust Christ, I trust the Holy Spirit, but, you know, I don't know how to say things, I don't know how to endure torture or, or anything, I don't know how to stand firm. Well, the truth is, God is working that in you, and at the time where you need to work it out, it will be available to you. The Holy Spirit is with you. And this, this idea of suffering in the Bible, there's no good instruction of make sure you do this, make sure you're ready for this. Make, that's not what it's about. What it's about is clinging to Christ. And in the moment that we face persecution for doing so, he will be with us and he will bring us through it in his great power. Take some time to read something like Fox's Book of Martyrs or, or, the, or the like, stories of, of martyrs who in so many cases knew what they were getting into, or in some cases they didn't know what they were getting into, and at the moment of decision where they either needed to turn from Christ or cling to him, they chose to cling to him, not in their own power, but in what the Holy Spirit worked in them. And so Paul says, if suffering makes me know Christ better, let's go. The result being rejoicing in the Lord. Have you grown comfortable and content with your relationship with Christ? Or do you long to know him more? I can say that I know my wife pretty well since we've been married for seven years. But many husbands out there, I'm sure, can tell me that they thought the same, but eight, nine, or ten years or more have shown that there's much to continue to learn about each other. How much more so with he who is the eternal word of God? Or consider children with parents. Day by day, Nora tells me to come and build a Lego house with her. She never contributes to the project. She has her own projects and her other things to attend to. She wants me to be sitting on the floor next to her, building a Lego house. She wants to be with me. The amazing thing, my friends, is that God has come to us. Rejoice. Christ, like any good daddy, is here now, ready to meet us in our here and now. 